Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn, and I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Happy President's Day to both of you, the day in which we celebrate Abraham Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson equally because we have to flatten all distinctions in society today and hold up... uh, uh, Buchanan and George Washington equally. I guess it's the equity version of of holidays. But today, it's still we'll, George Washington holiday for me. <laughs> today, we'll discuss the San Francisco school board recalls, and we'll remember the great P.J. O'Rourke. But first, I want to go back to Canada. We led the program last week talking about this trucker convoy. And when we were talking to you last week, they had just cleared the Ambassador Bridge. But this blockade of downtown Ottawa still existed. And after we wrapped up the program last Monday, uh, to borrow from Will Ferrell and Anchorman, wow, that really escalated quickly. Uh, you had the invocation of this Emergencies Act, which the uh, was a follow-up law to one that existed prior to it that had been invoked by Justin Trudeau's father in order to deal with domestic terrorists in the uh, Quebec separatist movement. You had just really some incredible things where you saw the deputy prime minister saying that um, basically they're going to try to freeze the bank accounts. They're going to use these powers to freeze the assets and bank accounts of people who they more or less just believe to be involved with or supporting the truckers. It was not incredibly clear, and it certainly was without any kind of court order. So you have this invocation of the Emergency Act, the threat of freezing of bank accounts. Uh, There's some other issues related to the financial support being lent to this trucker convoy. Um, But I'll throw it out to you first, Sam. A week later, after what we discussed on this show last week... Now with it being broken up, um, and as we noted, it was this protest itself was never particularly popular in Canada. Um, obviously, different culture in Canada, as we noted last week as well. Uh, what do you think the enduring impact, if any, this trucker convoy had on issues surrounding mitigation measures for COVID-19 in Canada? Well, thanks, Eric. Well, there's a number of things I think we can talk about here, and it goes beyond COVID, right? And one is that the invocation of the Emergencies Act by Justin Trudeau illustrated a couple of things. One is that at the local and provincial level, they had clearly failed to deal with this properly, not least because there was a reluctance to enforce existing laws, on the part of local and uh, provincial officials. And so it's, you know, rapidly escalated and it's very clear that the rhetoric of Justin Trudeau, who is probably, I think, fairly described as the most woke illiberal 
head of government in the world right now, or he certainly acquired that reputation. Just to prove that the internet remains undefeated, um, the trending topic I saw the other day was referring to Trudeau, Emperor Pal Putin. <laughs> I love democracy. Yes, I remember the line from uh, the, one of the early prequels for Star Wars as well. So that's one thing. Another thing which uh, uh, I think is uh, particularly revealing is that it does reflect the degree to which, even in a country like Canada, which, as you pointed out, Eric, has a very different political culture to the United States in which people are generally more, how shall I put this, obedient, so to speak, more deferential to authority than, say, Americans are, that even there, there is just a deep frustration with the persistence of these mitigation measures, which I think it's fair to say now seem to have much more to do with ideology and ideological commitment to particular views of what society should be like, <clears throat> how people should be interacting with each other, and the role of government as a whole. The, the, the sense that so many people are just fed up with this, that in Canada that they're doing this, tells us that the degree of frustration is deep and widespread, far more, I think, than many people in the political class actually realize. I think the other thing which is going to be very interesting is <clears throat> whether this actually produces any long-term effect in terms of winding back measures, because I think measures are being wound back around the world right now in different... Britain, for example, and some Scandinavian countries have essentially gotten rid of these things. In some European, continental European countries, even in countries like Austria, which have had this terribly draconic approach to the whole thing, are now starting to signal that they're going to lift these different measures. So I think that's what's playing into uh, the overall mitigation factor when it comes to the this this whole debate about the role of government. But it also raises interesting questions, right, about the limits of public protest, where you draw the line, how public officials should be responding to these. And of course, we're not just talking about the recent events. We can go back to the 2020 with the riots that were breaking out all over the United States and the failure of government officials to respond to these things in ways that were appropriate given and using existing powers that they already had. So uh, it's 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 a, I think a very very problematic situation because extending emergency powers is one thing, winding them back can be a very different affair. It, this is uh, Higgs's um, crisis in Leviathan. That you get the invocation of these kind of expanded powers, and in emergencies, and even if you are able to pull back from them, you never pull back all the way. So I, I think there. As I said last week, while I agree largely with the cause of this trucker convoy, I'm not all right with the tactics that they have been using. But the, you know, to take it as Justin Trudeau did here to 11, where, you know, it strikes me that there are a lot of measures that could have been taken by the police that didn't need this Emergencies Act to empower them to do to enforce the law. They could have been arresting these people. And I look, you understand, as we noted last week and if numerous people have noted, what's different about this protest is that these people come with their own barricades, right? I mean, you have 
these, you know, just 80 ton trucks that they can park and blockade uh, the Capitol area in Ottawa and this bridge. So it's, it's different in that sense. It's more complicated. But there were simple and clear police actions that could have been taken that wouldn't have escalated things quite to the extent we saw and that didn't need the invocation of this act that, again, was written to clean up a previous act that's in last invocation was for domestic terrorism and Quebec separatists. So there is a sense in which these protests have been successful. They, of course, were not successful in moving Prime Minister Trudeau nor his government. They were successful in moving several provincial governments, including Quebec, which uh, starting today will no longer require either places of worship or funerals to implement vaccine passports. Um, And this is – there are a number of provisional governments, (coughs) provincial governments that have instituted or accelerated their – or or repealed or accelerated their timelines for repeal of these COVID restrictions before this – You also have the premier of Alberta now openly calling into question the legality of this emergency act and its implementation in this circumstance. And it's really reoriented Canadian politics um, in a way that, you know, as we talked about, these were not well liked protests by and large in Canada. Many Canadians, you know, most Canadians did not like the, either these tactics or even these ends. But there seems to be a much larger constituency in Canada that is against this sort of uh, emergency orders and this sort of grasping of powers. It's because- interesting there, Dan, that we, even the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, which is about as far left as you can imagine, has said that they find uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's actions invoking the Emergency Act unconscionable. So it tells you across the political spectrum, right, there's deep dissatisfaction with what's what's just happened. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this, so this will be, this, this story is not over. Um, these, these protests might very well be over. Um, but the way that this was resolved um, has, has caused sort of a new crisis, uh, a political crisis, rather than one stemming directly from the civil disobedience. Something I found interesting over the weekend and late last week as empowered under the Emergencies Act that the uh, uh, police forces moved in to start clearing out this encampment and this blockade. Uh, I, I found that connected to a lot of our friends in the national conservatism conservatism movement who were making statements like, you know, why should we care what uh, two corrupt Slavic countries are doing vis-a-vis each other, referring to uh, Ukraine and Russia, when just north of our border, you have this, you know, depending on how irresponsible the voice was, literal comparisons to uh, to, to Hitler or whoever um, invoking these kind of dictatorial powers. And the, what I thought was interesting about this is, one, um, you can care about both things. I don't know who needs to hear that, but I'm just going to state that for the record. Uh, you can both care about the aggressiveness of Putin's Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine, and you can care about the violations of people's civil liberties in Canada. You don't have to pick one. 
No one said you had to pick one. And just because it's closer to us here at home does not mean that it is necessarily the bigger threat to uh, to global stability. Um, just want to put that point out there. The other is it. I can't help but think thinking back to what you brought up, Sam, about the Black Lives Matter protest, the riots following the George Floyd uh, incident la- uh, last year. I cannot or two years ago now, um, I cannot help but think that a lot of these people who are opposed to what Justin Trudeau has done here invoking this Emergencies Act. And again, I want to be clear about one thing as a caveat here. There was no rioting. There was no looting. There was none of the um, excesses attached to this trucker convoy as there was to the Black Lives Matter protest. But there were there was an encampment built up a blockade around the Capitol area. Not totally dissimilar from Chaz and Chop in Seattle. Uh, And it strikes me that a lot of the people who are just absolutely scandalized by what Justin Trudeau has done here would probably have been in favor of using the same kind of force to clear out a lot of Chaz and Chop and a lot of these protests. And it just gets down to what I said last week, which is the depressing thing to this about me, is that the analysis from a lot of people seems entirely based around, I like the tactics when I like the people and the cause, and I dislike the tactics when I dislike the people and the cause. And I just find that incredibly disappointing. Well, I think it also points to something else, which I worry about a great deal. And that is, I think the growing lawlessness that we're finding across many Western countries now, and I mean that in two senses. One is the lawlessness of people rioting, the people who are doing things that disrupt the well-being of the society around them, obstruct basic delivery of basic services, disobey the legitimate laws, etc. So that's one part of it. But it's also the other part of it, right, which is the way that many state officials have been acting, right? So when a court says, no, you may not do this, <clears throat> so they find another way of doing it or whatever it is that they want to achieve. Or they blatantly simply ignore uh, uh, legitimate law or they simply refuse to do what they're supposed to do when it comes to enforcing certain things. And then they also over-apply existing laws or existing provisions that uh, already exist and apply these in a way which is overbearing and without really any significant cause for redress of those who are affected. So rule of law goes both ways, right? It's, It's about constraining the state, but it's also about how citizens interact with each other and vis-a-vis state authorities. And I think COVID and everything that's been associated with that has really damaged people's understanding of what rule of law is, as well as the state of rule of law in many Western societies. And that's really dangerous because I often think that civilization can be a very thin thing. And when something like respect for rule of law or even understanding of rule of law starts to disappear, then society is headed in a very unhappy direction. I think Sam is absolutely right about that. And that's one of the things – I mean we have, we have of course rights and duties towards the state and the state has rights and duties towards us. 
And this is one of the ways I think that um, what is happening in Canada and Russia is different is that there is a long-standing understanding of that relationship in countries that come out of the English common law tradition. There is no such tradition in Russia. Um, that's unfortunate. Um, that's terrible. But, you know, Russia has been invading Ukraine since 2014, um, successfully, um, might I add, um, and, with, and with, you know, very limited opposition. So I think the situations are different. Um, what we see in Russia is a continuing state of disrespect for international law, the place of, you know, of respecting the territorial integrity of other nations. What we see in Canada, however, is new um, and, uh, and, and should cause us more concern in that sense, um, not in the sense of, you know, absolute sort of geopolitical importance, but in the sense of that departure from the rule of law um, rather than, you know, it's continuing, you know, ignorance of and, uh, you know, uh, lack of disrespect towards. One of the things that has always am amazed me is how people will tolerate what I believe and I think are truly awful transgressions from politicians and state officials, but that they get really pushed over the edge by what seems to be small and trivial things. And my clearest example of this is when I was in Chicago, um, the organization I was with did public policy work there. And, you know, it's it's Illinois, it's Chicago. We've been raising alarm bells about the levels of taxation and the various forms of the way that the state takes money from you for years. Um, to varying levels of success depending on the circumstances and, and the day. They implemented – Cook County, where Chicago is, implemented a penny per ounce tax on sugary beverages, a soda tax. But it applied to way more than soda. It was one of those things that was written so that if you got, if you got a regular coffee, it wouldn't be taxed. But if you got a mochaccino, it would be taxed. And – the amount – how quickly people blew up about that was amazing, whereas Illinois has some of the highest property taxes in the state or in the entire country and people just eh, – whatever about that. But a penny per ounce tax on soda, absolutely, absolutely not. Um, the COVID protocol stuff that Sam brought up is another clear example of this to me, that – People are willing to tolerate things that I just don't think we should ever tolerate from politicians and from government officials. And yet the thing that I think is going to be the – was to me the death knell, the, the reason why all masking guidance and enforcement mechanisms for masking is going to end in pretty short order was the Super Bowl. Whereas you are looking at the people in the stands, the people in the boxes, um, and the previous excuses from two weeks prior of the championship game where you had uh, the mayor of L.A. saying, oh, he didn't have his mask on, but he was holding his breath for the picture for the photo he took with Magic Johnson. It's it was it's also absurd. 
And in a way, it seems very, very trivial that the argument you get from the pro-mask people that says, ah, putting a mask on is not really a big deal. Why are you so worked up about it? It's like, well, because all of you people cannot abide the same rules that you want to put onto other people. And that is the, to me, the heart of rule of law is that the law is supposed to apply to the people who make the laws as it is to the people who are supposed to be subject to those laws. And you see so clearly here in admittedly trivial kinds of ways how that has been violated. And I think Sam is right that the consequences of that are worrisome to me. And it's also worrisome because rule of law is a very difficult thing to establish in the first place. Generally speaking, it's not the norm. It takes a long time before different groups of people will agree, freely agree, to voluntarily submit themselves within the context of a sovereign entity, to the same rules as everyone else. It's one of, rule of law is one of the major achievements, I think, of Western civilization uh, and the sort of broad movement towards constitutionalism, which really began in the Middle Ages and then really again took off, I think, towards the end of the 18th century in a very systematic way. But once that starts to corrode or people don't see it actually having any real significance or meaning for their lives or when they see those who are most associated with authority, such as mayors of Los Angeles or governors of California or political leaders in different parts of the world, when they see that these people who are charged with upholding these things blatantly disregarding the, the rules that are supposed to apply to them. One of the criteria of rule of law is that those charged with enforcing the law are subject to the same laws as everyone else. When that starts to disappear, it's very difficult to claw that back and to get people to understand why they should accept rule of law. There's one other element of this story that I want to touch on before we leave the topic, and that is the way people were contributing money to support this trucker convoy. Uh, Now, originally, this was being done via the usual site for this, which is GoFundMe. And GoFundMe makes the statement that says, yeah, you all gave it for this purpose, but we don't agree with it. So what we're going to do is we're going to redirect it to charitable organizations that we think are good. And uh, admittedly, uh, this is one of the cases where you know, public outcry worked well. People were outraged about that. And they said, "Okay, fine, we'll just release it to the people it's supposed to go to. But that moved people, gave people reason to move off of GoFundMe, and they moved to this uh, site called Give, Send, Go, which my understanding is it is a more Christian-oriented crowdfunding platform. And what happened following the transition to Give, Send, Go being the site used for crowdfunding the trucker convoy is there was a data leak. So all the data on who donated to this trucker convoy is out there. And unsurprisingly, I'm sure none of you will be terribly shocked by this, that if you look, if I were to Google, as I did, leaked trucker donations, stories from uh, Texas CEO gave $20,000 to Canadian trucker convoy. Um, You had a story in the Washington Post where they went and hunted down someone who gave $45 to support the trucker convoy. Uh, There's a reason why there are laws about charitable giving, particularly to nonprofit organizations, that that 
data is private because exactly what is happening here is what you would have seen happen to people who donated to groups like the uh, NAACP or to the ACLU back before the ACLU just abrogated its entire mission, that they want to protect their donors from harassment like this. And that's exactly what's happening to the people who donated to these uh, the, the, to the trucker convoy. And what was amazing to me is I want to compare this to another story that happened in Kentucky. Uh, a candidate for mayor of Louisville, uh, Craig Greenberg, somebody tried to assassinate him. Democrat Jewish candidate for mayor of Louisville. A hundred thousand dollars of money that was raised by Black Lives Matter was used to bail out the person who is charged with the attempted assassination of Craig Greenberg. Now, thankfully, Craig Greenberg is fine. The bullet um, grazed his sweater, which is just an incredible description of how that transpired. And thank God he's okay. But do you do you think the people who are cheering the leak of information about the trucker convoy want the donation information of people who gave to Black Lives Matter, the $100,000 of which was used to bail this person out of jail, revealed to the public? No, they don't. And you know what? I don't – I think that's a terrible decision on their part, but I don't want that deci- that information out there either. And the way that the media has decided to take one of these and run with it and not investigate the other is just incredibly telling. It's telling that it's been going on for a long time, right? I mean, the, the, the double standard that seems to be applying everywhere with so many questions, whether it's who investigated who, whether it's a question of uh, who did what to who during 2020, it's basically the case now that, that most media essentially refuse to report certain things. Now, the good news is, is that they don't control the narrative as much as uh, they would have, say, 30 years ago. You can't hide things like Monica Lewinsky anymore. You can't hide all sorts of things that once upon a time um, uh, politicians were very happy for journalists not to talk about in public. But it does tell us something about how partisan media has become and also how much journalism has lost sight of what it's supposed to be about and it's become much more activist in its focus and agenda, which is one of the reasons why uh, journalists are, by and large, um, not trusted, generally speaking, whereas 30 years ago would have been a very different story. But now I think journalists are right up there with bank robbers when it comes to how they're ranked <laughs> in terms of who trusts who or regard for who in 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 uh, the United States today. So that double standard, that hypocrisy, I think, that's going to be uh, another very difficult thing for institutions such as the media to recover because they're so far, far down the path of partisan activism that I don't see how they get out of it. I mean, Kierkegaard said it best, that the daily press is the evil principle of the modern world, and time will only serve to disclose this fact with greater and greater clearness. Um, This is an old problem, Um, and this is an old problem because, um, you know, journalists have greater voice, and they have a greater ability to bring to bear scrutiny. 
on others. Um, and that's a power that some journalists endeavor to, uh, you know, uh, wield, you know, responsibly. And that's a power that many fail to do. Um, one of the things, and this goes back to the, this funding um, question, part of these emergency orders involved the Canadian government being able to freeze bank accounts of persons who gave to this protest and to do so, you know, to send letters as they did to banks, all sorts of different financial institutions to prevent this. And if we agree with the Supreme Court, which I'm inclined to, that money is speech, that there is a very real way in which um, funding um, helps facilitate and is necessary to the dissemination of ideas in a free society, this should be very, very worrying. And uh, in, a, in, a, in a world in which you know, governments can freeze and in which uh, journalists can weaponize information to you know, highlight individuals um, and, their, and, their, uh, and their speech, um, it's, it's a very troubling situation. Let's move now to San Francisco, where something quite fascinating happened last week. There was a recall election for three members of the San Francisco Unified Board of Education. Uh, the last time that there was a uh, recall for a San Francisco public official, bonus points if either of you can name who that public official was. Yes, no, no. No. I'm not West Coast. Then no. Mayor Dianne Feinstein, who in 1983 survived a recall election with 81% of the vote. Much different outcome in these three elections. Three members of the San Francisco Unified Board of Education. Now, I will note that these are the only three members who were eligible to be recalled. You have to have been in this office for a certain amount of time before you're eligible to be recalled. And I, I tend to believe that if everybody would have been able to be recalled, uh, the results might look like they looked for these three members. Uh, the vote yet, uh, yes to recall, Gabriela Lopez had 75 percent. Uh, yes vote to recall Allison Collins, 78.6%. And the yes vote to recall, uh, I believe it's pronounced Fauga Moliga. Apologies if I'm pronouncing it wrong, 72.1%. Now, we'll note that uh, low turnout, I believe in the 20% range for this election, as uh, is often true of these one-off recall elections that aren't part of larger uh, city, state, or national elections. But nonetheless, the overwhelming margin in favor of recalling these three members of the Board of Education. So it raises the question, why? Why is this happening? And it's one of these things like we talked about with uh, Glenn Youngkin's election in Virginia that the issue is education, but it's a Rorschach for a whole lot of things that were going on. And the two primary ones, as I've been able to determine it, one had to do with in the midst of a time where you know, in the 2020-2021 school year, where schools were still closed, the Board of Education was considering renaming a whole bunch of the closed schools, including ones that had been named for Abraham Lincoln and the aforementioned Diane Feinstein. 
And the other major issue was this selective enrollment school, Lowell. It's a high school that you have to test into. They were changing it from the testing requirement as to how you got enrolled into the school to a lottery. The reason for that change was the cause of equity, that they wanted more black and Hispanic students in the school. But it disproportionately affected Asian students who had a larger enrollment in that school because they tested better uh, by and large. Again, this is San Francisco that we are talking about. This is not someplace in the American heartland. This is not even Loudoun County. This is not place where some big CRT blow up has been happening. You have this happening in the heart of San Francisco. Sam, what do you make of this? Well, I think it reflects a general frustration with the whole diversity, equity, inclusion movement because more and more people are starting to see, including people who would otherwise identify themselves as quite liberal, that there's something deeply problematic with the whole diversity agenda, equity agenda, inclusion agenda when it starts to basically result in the exclusion of people based upon things like race, uh, what group you belong to, skin color, religion, whatever it happens to be. People start to see that <clears throat> a movement or ideas that are all supposed to be about equity and making life fair and all that turn out to be deeply unfair. So I think there's a sort of visceral reaction on the part of even many people who regard themselves as quite liberal when they see this thing starting to occur and when it starts to affect them personally. Because it's one thing to be ideologically committed to a series of principles and positions. It's another thing when that series of principles and positions starts to negatively affect people you know, members of your own family, friends, etc. And the injustice of it becomes very, very immediately clear to people in a way that takes them beyond the sort of abstract, abstract ideas of diversity, inclusion, etc. So when I hear the word diversity, for example, I don't think pluralism, I don't think uh, genuine variety, I hear ideological agenda that's pushing a particular way of viewing the world in order to get everyone to think one way about the world and how things should be. So when the reality of the effects of some of these policies start to affect people in a place like San Francisco, that should tell us just how much dissatisfaction there is with this particular ideological agenda and it's starting to have some impact in places where you wouldn't expect it to. Your point about people whose ideological commitments would seem to dictate that uh, they would be in favor of what the school board was doing. Um, I, I'm, I'm reminded of a line in Hillary Clinton's seminal work, It Takes a Village, that she says we really do need to get beyond the idea that there is such a thing as someone else's child. And – from an abstract 
principle point of view, I imagine a lot of people in San Francisco would agree with that, that, you know, it's like, oh, you, you know, we want to treat all children the same. We want to care about all children the same. I think it's the story. I don't believe it's an apocryphal one either. I think it's Phil Graham who had said, was asked about his philosophy on education. He's like, well, I start from the principle that I care more about my children than you do. And the woman who asked him this question says, no, I care just as much about your children as you do. And he said, oh, yeah, well, what are their names? Right. When it starts to affect your personal children, like you're seeing here, people who had previous ideological commitments um, are willing to compartmentalize those ideological commitments and change the way they're thinking about the issue at hand because it's now affecting their kids. I mean, we have a language for this in economics. This is the public choice language is access to these sort of magnate schools. That's a concentrated benefit for these families and for their relatives, their friends. And, you know, Eric is right to point out this is a very small percentage of the electorate that that did this. But it's a very small percentage of the electorate that elects any school board anywhere in the United States. Um, you know, democracy is in, in this country is often the case, you know, where success, you know, 90 percent of success is showing up. And if you can get enough people to care about an issue and enough doesn't have to be a lot. Enough can be just enough to move that median voter where now you have the mayor of San Francisco talking about how the school board failed San Francisco's children. Um, and this is something that, you know, overnight it can turn. Um, and, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, this is a, an issue of very successful political organization, mobilizing people invested in this community to, to bring about some uh, real positive change. To uh, Sam's point earlier about the, you know, people being frustrated with the diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, Allison Collins, one of the recalled uh, board members, I, I'm just going to read you one tweet. And I, again, I will note, the people defending these three school board members, and I think this is actually a very interesting part of this have been saying a group of uh, progressives in San Francisco tweeted out that this just shows how white supremacy is alive and well in San Francisco, which is the kind of thing that if the Babylon Bee wrote, nobody would believe it is satire. But we're here we are. Um, this is a tweet from Allison Collins, one the one who had the largest share of yes votes for being recalled. Two SLGBTQIA plus disabled Native American, Black, Latinx, Asian American, Arab, and low income students deserve to go to schools free of hate and discrimination. Creating policies that eradicate violence against them is not a quote distraction from academics. There's that dog whistle, and it uh, one. This is just shibboleth laden language, right? This is all in-group signaling to show that like she is part of the smart set and she knows what all of these things mean. And if you don't understand the continually changing acronyms, then that is somehow a poor reflection on you. But it's a kind of thing where people are saying the schools aren't open. Is this really the most important thing that we should be focusing on at this moment in time? And it seems the answer from most parent or at least a the organized group of people interested in this in San Francisco is no, it is not. Sam, I, I want to throw a question to you about this. Does this – when we think about the anti-CRT legislation that is being proposed in various states – 
Does this show a better and more effective way to address those curriculum problems than having this generally sweeping and often poorly written, ambiguous legislation at a state level as opposed to what we saw here and which shows what's possible even in San Francisco, that public officials who are in charge of making those kinds of decisions can be held accountable. Is this a strike against the people who think that there is the need for this legislative solution to critical race theory uh, type problems in the education curriculum? My own view on this is that it's generally much better for these things to come from below as a bottom-up exercise in associationalism. Uh, I think, for example, parents have every right to know what's being taught to their children. The notion that somehow teachers can prevent parents from knowing what their children are being taught in school is deeply problematic. And when it's interesting, isn't it, when parents discover things like CRT or DEI initiatives at work in school curriculum or in the way that teachers teach or they discover what teachers' unions are really about, they react in a very negative way. And they're not all diehard conservatives. As I said, I think one of the fascinating things about this is that there are many people who are otherwise view themselves as liberal uh, pushing back against this type of ideological indoctrination via schools. The problem with top-down solutions to these things is that you run the risk of uh, providing unclear, ambiguous uh, frameworks for government officials to try and work their way through these particular problems. And it also, I think, lends to a one-size-fits-all. You also end up getting into debates about, well, what is CRT, what is not CRT? Now, I happen to think it's very clear what CRT is. But when you try and legislate these things from the top down, it's not clear to me that you're going to get particularly clear guidance because these things are cobbled together by legislatures and there's all sorts of different things that different legislators are trying to achieve with these, these types of um, legislation. Often I think it's, a, in a sense, a bit of virtue signaling that's going on in some respects as well because if legislators were so concerned about this, I don't, don't recall them doing very much about it for uh, some time until people started getting angry and aware about what was, their children were being exposed to. So I think the associational bottom-up approach is much better for dealing with these types of issues because it really is, does seem to me to be the way to affect change in terms of removing public officials who are ideologically committed to this insidious type of thinking being taught to children. And it's also a way, I think, for parents to get more involved in the whole process of education. Just because you send your child out to school doesn't mean that somehow you've now um, outsourced the whole responsibility for your child's education. I think the associational approach provides ways for parents to get much more actively involved in what's being taught and for actual serious discussion among parents with teachers about what should be taught and what should not be taught. And you really can't do that when you have a top-down approach to these, these particular types of problems. I mean, the reality in education, and I taught for a number of years, is the reality of education is 
the idea that the standards that each and every state has, each and every state out there prescribes certain things be taught um, and makes it so certain other things can't be taught. Um, the, the amount of impact that has on the ground is actually very little once you get into a classroom. And the fundamental key to understanding this is that, like in many things, personnel is policy. And if you want to change this, one way is through the political mechanisms that we have, like school boards. But the other way is to take a look at our schools of education in this country. Take a look at what they are teaching and what they have been teaching for the last 40 years is by and large what you're seeing now. Um, teaching is a vocation in this country, particularly public, you know, teaching in a public school is a highly regulated vocation that, um, you know, there are certain standards of licensure in every state. And there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into that program. And unless you are going to root and branch, uproot all of these teachers and replace them, this will continue to be an issue in many places because this is the way many people have been professionally formed. And it's going to be a long road back from this. One of the consolations we can take from this is that education in this country is pretty dysfunctional. And the idea that many students will remember these things two, three years out of graduation are very small. Um, if you look at uh, – Brian Kaplan did a wonderful book, uh, The Case Against Education, looking at retention of things like basic civics, even foreign language where students have a dedicated class in, in a subject and how little impact a lot of this has – on the student body. Now, that's sort of tragic. There might be better ways of doing it, but the system we have right now is not really up to the task to ideologically re-engineering the populace. They can't, frankly, teach them to read. The COVID-19 pandemic revealed so much of this, right? Because when the schools close and it goes to online and parents are now there and able, as Sam said, to witness the kinds of things that are involved that are make up the curriculum, um, it it makes them more aware. And it, it's it's similar in that sense that, you know, you don't have a lot of parents who are that involved previously in understanding what was in the curriculum or all that much interest they have entrusted these public school systems to teach their kids and just didn't look that deeply into it. And it's a good thing that people are paying more attention to it. I, I think my my biggest problem with the CRT, anti-CRT legislation push has always been that it is trying to find a very impatient and immediate solution to a problem that was created over years and decades. And it fails to me, considering that it's mostly conservatives who are making the argument to understand that you don't usually get those kinds of silver bullets very quick fixes to problems like this. It just does not really happen that way. And because by and large people from the right, Dan, you said you taught not a lot of people who think the way you do and believe the kind of things that you do, or at least disproportionately people who think differently than you 
are the ones who go into education. And they're the ones who, as a result of going into education in college, teach. They're not the ones who become the people who teach the future teachers. And as a result of this, this kind of pulling back in a way from the system and seeding it to people with different ideological views, it has unremarkably turned out the way that it has turned out. And it seems as if this legislation wants to think that in a couple pages of text on pseudo parchment, we will be able to fix all of those problems. And I think we could probably all agree that that's just not going to fix all the all the problems that have built up over decades. Finally, our last topic today is we learned last Tuesday, February 15th, of the passing of P.J. O'Rourke at his home in Sharon, New Hampshire, at the age of 74. Uh, one of these deaths that, you know, 74 years old is uh, old, but I would say not old enough. And uh, P.J., who is just such a remarkable and interesting and, of course, very funny figure writer for numerous years, started out uh, at the National Lampoon as editor of that magazine. And if you've ever seen, I think there's a documentary about National Lampoon a little while back that showed how you know PJ essentially became the editor of the magazine because he was the only one who wasn't so drug-addled that he wasn't able, uh, didn't completely fail at getting things together on a deadline. Um, but of course, went on to write for Rolling Stone, for uh, I believe Vanity Fair, numerous other publications, including uh, some very successful books. Uh, there have been some great pieces memorializing him. Matt Labash had a fantastic one. John Podhoritz also had a fantastic one. Uh, our own Anthony Sacramone had a very good piece about it. We'll put all of those in the show notes. Uh, but, you know, Sam, share any thoughts that you have on the, the life and career of P.J. O'Rourke. Well, he was <clears throat> a masterful humorist. And he had a way of expressing basic liberty, conservative insights into human reality and all its messiness and all its fallibility and all its weaknesses that were extremely effective in immunizing large numbers of the population who don't have time to sit down and read Edmund Burke or Adam Smith and who probably may not even uh, see the need to pick up such a text, but he was extremely good at bringing some of the basic messages contained in, let's call it the conservative classical liberal canon, to bear upon uh, everyone's everyday reality, especially when it came to dealing with political life and government and understanding that uh, these are domains of human life that are just as affected by human weakness, human fallibility, what uh, Jews and Christians would call sin, and to, to avoid the trap of romanticizing these types of professions, these types of state entities. So he was a f very, very good at doing that. The second thing was he was extremely personable. I only met him once, and that was, I believe, at the Acton 2013 annual dinner where I believe he spoke, and I'm pretty sure that's up on Acton's uh, website It was now. our Acton Vault uh, podcast last Friday. We'll include that in the show notes as well. Well, there you go. And I only met him once, and what was interesting to me about him was uh, 
he was extremely personable and he didn't have the sort of high maintenance attitude that you unfortunately encounter among a number of what you might call conservative classical liberal pundits. He was just a very normal person, very uh, like the rest of us, fallible, makes mistakes, etc., but doesn't, didn't try and disguise it. The, other, the third thing I'd say is that he believed in God. He really sincerely believed in God and thought that that was extremely important in terms of understanding the limits of the human condition, uh, to appreciating some of the humor of the human condition, but also that there is a hope that transcends the human condition. So for all those reasons, I think he was extraordinarily effective as a communicator, not just of things that make us laugh, but of quite serious insights into reality that I think are very central to the way that American conservatives, American classical liberals think and talk about the world. In the preface to uh, his 1991 book, Parliament of Horrors, to hit on the note you just mentioned about believing in God. Uh, It ends this way. God is an elderly or at any rate middle-aged male, a stern fellow, patriarchal rather than paternal, and a great believer in rules and regulations. He holds men strictly accountable for their actions. He has little apparent concern for the material well-being of the disadvantaged. He is politically connected, socially powerful, and holds the mortgage on literally everything in the world. God is difficult. God is unsentimental. It is very hard to get into God's heavenly country club. Santa Claus is another matter. He's cute. He's non-threatening. He's always cheerful. He loves animals. He may know who's been naughty and who's been nice, but he never does anything about it. He gives everyone everything they want without thought of a quid pro quo. He works hard for charities, and he's famously generous to the poor. Santa Claus is preferable to God in every way but one. There is no such thing as Santa Claus. I want to echo... Sam's sentiments. I also only met PJ once, and it was at uh, that dinner. And one of the things that PJ, you know, would himself boast of and that he was famous for is his ability to close down a bar. And at that annual dinner, we, of course, have hospitality both before and after. And PJ stayed until the last person went. Acton's president, Chris Maurin, had to actually be like, it's okay. You can leave now. Um, And that's, again, that's a very generous spirit. You know, it could it could it could have been part of that part of part of that could have been a lust for booze. But PJ was a successful enough man that you know he could order his own drinks at the bar. But he stayed. He stayed with staff. He stayed with guests and was happy to talk and joke with any with everyone. Um, I had first been introduced to PJ's writing through Car and Driver magazine, in which he would write uh, car. Uh, Automobile reviews, humorous commentary. Um, Many people are familiar with him uh, these days from his guest appearances on an NPR variety show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And this is one of the things that PJ is good about. He would show up in unconventional venues. He wasn't merely a conservative humorist or a right-wing humorist, although he was probably both of those things. He was first and foremost a humorist. 
to the story of his generosity of spirit and Matt Labash's piece about PJ included a note that after John Podhoritz published his obituary of PJ, uh, some guy named Sam Pocker sent Podhoritz a letter. This is what it said. When I was 17, I went to a PJ O'Rourke book signing in the dead of winter that was sparsely attended. I was the youngest person there by at least 15 years. He signed his book for me and wrote Peace Kills on the inscription. I must have looked miserable, and he asked what was wrong. After being told for years that I was a great writer, my writing teacher had given me nothing but straight failing grades in my first year of college. I explained this along with the fact that the paper I'd written, which I still remember was a detailed four-page review of Dinner at KFC, had been handed to me with an F just before heading over to the venue. PJ asked to see the paper. I took it out of my backpack and stood there as this well-regarded author carefully read all four pages. He looked up and said, she's just jealous. I grew up and became a published author. People have shared numerous similar stories. I, I was fortunate enough to meet PJ several times, mostly at book signings. Again, always incredibly kind and willing to talk to anyone. You didn't get the the feeling that I have had at previous book signings with some other authors. They just wanted you to move on in the line. Uh, he was willing to talk to you. I The copy of Parliament of Horrors that I'm holding right now, I actually found in a Milwaukee airport used bookstore. And it was an original, 1991 original first edition. And I brought it to another book signing for uh, one of PJ's other books. And he signed it to me, uh, to Eric, Vote Like Hell, PJ O'Rourke, and dated it 6-1709. And for our first Acton University online, I was fortunate to moderate a panel with PJ O'Rourke on it that uh, when he asked me to call him and just gave me his cell phone number because he wanted to talk through what the panel was going to cover, I noted to him the day we'd be talking was 61709. Um, or 617.20, and that it would be 11 years to the date. And he found this quite amusing, as he did when I originally told him that I found the book in a used bookstore in the Milwaukee County Airport. But I think I'll, we'll close with uh, with this about PJ, or at least what I remember first making me truly love his writing, which was reading Parliament of Whores. And lying, you know, I'm lying in bed next to my wife, Becca, and I started laughing so hard that I woke her up. And I remember the exact passage that did it where it's a chapter on agricultural policy. And he's describing the how uh, cows, baby cows are made, at least on farms. Uh, And the paragraph begins with. George got a real farmer to come uh, by and actually do the honors. So while I held the cow's head and George held the cow's middle, the real farmer, Pete, took the bovine marital aid and inserted it into a personal and private place of the cows. Then Pete squirted liquid dish soap on himself and inserted his right arm into an even more personal and private place of the cows all the way up to the elbow. Pete did this not in order to have Robert Maplethorpe take his photograph, but in order to grasp the inseminator tube through the intestine wall and guide the tube into the mouth of the uterus. It's an alarming thing to watch, and I'm glad to say I didn't watch it because I was at the cow's other end. But I'll tell you this. I will never forget the look on that cow's face. The same look, and for the same reason, appeared on my own face when I began reading the 1990 Omnibus Farm Bill, which is just... (laughs) A brilliant line, and uh, I highly recommend Parliament of Horrors if you've never read it. Truly an incredible loss. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke passed away last week at 74 years old. We'll call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind. 
or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a five-star review. Any uh, thoughts you have on the show, comments, questions, uh, we would really love to hear from you, and it really helps more people find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.